Family, in our last time together in the study of Ephesians, we were thrust into Paul's prayers for the believers in Asia Minor. Now, Paul was under house arrest in Rome. He's a thousand miles west, and yet he's heard of the faith of these brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus and the agape love that they express for each other. And uh, this was not only in the house churches in, in Ephesus, it was all over Asia Minor. This, uh, his response to this was to give thanks to God and to keep those saints before the Lord in his prayers. He continues in his prayer that his desire is that God lavish upon them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in an intense, intimate knowledge of God. And Paul began another prayer in verse 18 that the saints became enlightened permanently as to the reality of the hope of being called out before the foundation of the, of the world, before time began. And Paul wanted them to know how precious they were to the Father who had called, adopted, redeemed, and made them an inheritance for himself. God accomplished this with his unlimited power demonstrated in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The Christ, seating him at the right hand to ever make intercession for the saints. That's us too. The powers set aside by God the Son to become human, to become the Redeemer, of voluntarily shedding his own blood, are taken back. They're restored to him. Okay? And the reigning Jesus has all things put under his feet. Lastly, the apostle wrote that Jesus, the risen Messiah, had been set as head over all things in the ecclesia. Now, that's the, the Greek word for the total of all the gatherings of believers in Jesus' name. And in the last phrase there at the end of chapter 1, he gave us a name. He said, we're called the body of Christ. So let's pray. Lord, we bow and we humble ourselves before you as your saved out ones, your adopted sons and daughters who long to experience more of your spirit of wisdom and revelation. Well, thank you, Holy Spirit, for introducing us to the power of God in raising us from sin and death to sit with you in the heavenlies. Activate the eyes of our hearts, to see what you're about in us and around us. Move us alongside of those lost ones you are showing your great mercy to and calling them to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, where Paul began with an expansion on his writing to the, to the Christians, the house churches in Rome. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now here, Paul focuses first on who and what the Gentiles had been prior to their encounter with the risen Christ. <clears throat> now, quote, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. 
So when Paul refers to you in the text, he often is directly speaking to Gentiles. When he uses the word we, he's typically speaking about Jews or a mixture of of Gentiles and Jewish believers together. So he, he, um, what he here is, um, is to say to them, here both Jew and Gentile are condemned as dead in their sins. The Greek word for trespass is paraptoma, which means of a, it talks about a slip or a fall of a man or a woman who loses their way. They just slide away from the truth. The Greek word for sins is hamartia, which describes a missing of the target. It's a shooting word. You're, you're aiming at a target. And when you miss, you know, it is a failure to be who you ought to be. Paul, writing to the Gentiles, sitting in the house church networks of Asia Minor, said that their slips and misses, both intentional and accidental, were formerly, had formerly left them in a state of spiritual death. Now, here, here's a statement of the doctrine of universal depravity. Okay? We were born with a sin nature hardwired to our DNA, inherited from our forefathers and ultimately from Adam. Further, we have made choice after choice to ratify that damning charge against us. We inherited it and we acted upon it. The problem arises that when we look in the mirror and around us, we see virile, robust bodies and active intellects that overflow with personality. The problem with us was, before we knew Christ, our souls were deaf, dumb, and blind to Holy Spirit. And there was no spiritual life at all. We were without Christ, making us a spiritual corpse. We were the walking dead. Then Paul explains how that death was enhanced and displayed. And he begins with the world system, the cosmos. Okay, this is a word that's used 186 times in the New Testament. And nearly every time it carries an evil spin. Those without Christ are locked up with the social and value systems of the cultural miasma around them. And we are too, around us. Okay, it is there. And it's hostile to Christ. Today, those who are spiritually dead are dominated by this world system that expresses itself with pop culture media, post-Christian lifestyles and values, and man-centered religious fads. If you watch 15 minutes of program and commercials on a seemingly innocuous cooking channel on television, it will tweak your discernment into high gear. Okay, the writers and producers and the principals on screen are drifting along with a deadly cultural view. Secondly, Paul points out to the Gentiles that they lived lives believing that the air around them was swarming with demons. You know, hundreds of years later, that was even described that you couldn't even put a pin into the airspace that was that tightly packed with these dark spirits. Okay? Those spirits answer to Satan, who is called the ruler of this world in John chapter 12, and God of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Satan energizes hosts of demonic spirits to coordinate the spirit of the age. That great German word, the zeitgeist, okay? The spirit of the age. 
The Gentiles had grown up in a world that was fairly vibrating with spiritual presence, but it was the spirit of death. Satan is that spirit that is at work with the minds, souls, and dead spirits of lost humanity. And those who Paul literally labels the unpersuadable, the uncorrectable, the uncompliant, and here translated in my text, this is the sons of disobedience. Okay? Thirdly, Paul underlays his statement about death and depravity with a final insight. Our flesh. Okay? That's not, uh, that's not the, the mortal body. That's a, a term that describes our mind and our soul and our selfish ways. Okay? And the Greek word is sarks. And it speaks of our personal passions and desires run through a purely selfish system of thought. Ooh, what's good for me right now? More coffee. No. Um, um, Kent Hughes tells a story about a little girl named Sally. Um, she had seized her little brother by his hair and kicked him in the shins. And when her mother got a hold of Sally, she said, why did you let Satan get you to kick him in the shins? And she said, well, yes, he did. I, you know, that was Satan. But grabbing him by the hair was my idea. <laughs> so when we run hard after the desires of our flesh, reactions of our flesh, Satan just steps aside and lets us run our own lives, resulting in his desire that we die alienated from God. Those without Christ are being hammered by the world, Satan, and their flesh. From without, from beyond, and from within. Resulting in spiritual death. That was who and what we were before being drawn to Christ by Holy Spirit. Paul concludes verse 3 with a sweeping inclusion of Greek and Jew. Where he said, we are all worthy of the wrath of God. So verses 4 to 7 continue, but on, a, on an entirely different track. Okay? <clears throat> it begins with a phrase that is larded through the Old and the New Testaments. It's the phrase, but God. And at that point, you know he's intervening. He's interdicting what's going on. Okay? But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive again with Christ, parenthesis, Okay. By grace you've been saved. Close bread. Raised up to him, raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So even when we were dead in spirit and soul, God chose to intervene, to interdict. Satan's plans to tear apart and discard the world's hold on us and to surgically remove our flesh from control over our spirit. <clears throat> that phrase, but God, is very often said in Scripture to remind us who He is and about His plans and His promises regarding us. Yes, verse 6 says, We have been saved by grace. But note that grace is preceded by his rich mercy. It is his mercy 
that breaks the shackles of sin and death off of us so that we can reach out for his grace. We can receive it. And his motive in, is this, in this is his great love for us. Loosing his mercy and, and great love, he made us alive. The Greek word is zoopoeo. It means to cause to live, to make alive, to give life. Now he did that with Adam to begin with, and he's done it with us. Okay. That is amazing. But it is not all that God did. He made us alive together with Christ. Jesus was resurrected from death, and spiritually, so were we. We were lifted from a certain end in hell, from alienation from God, to be with him and Christ Jesus, seated in heavenly places. That's miraculous love expressed in our own being made alive with Christ. Further, that, quote, being saved by the grace of God, unquote, took place in time and space history. And it's locked in the present and future time as well. Okay. It wasn't, oh, I, it got away from me. It slipped. It, it, I, I forgot. No, it's there. Okay. God wants to be able to display us as his finished works of grace, the surpassing riches of his grace in ages to come. So that he gets glory. Resurrected from death, ascended to sit in the heavenlies, lavished with the riches of his mercy, grace, and kindness. The contrast to our previous spiritually dead state is astonishing. In verse 8, we find a phrase that summarizes salvation in nine words. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is the most direct, simple statement of the gospel and scripture. This salvation, this justification, sanctification, glorification, past, present, and future salvation is not due to any effort or awareness on our part. God's unmerited favor reaching out to completely, utterly lost, undeserving ones such as we were is how we came into a relationship with God. An unbelieving preacher, notice, I'll introduce it that way. An unbelieving preacher tried to illustrate how to be saved with the story of a frog that fell into a crock of cream. And the frog, try as he might, couldn't leap up the sides of the crock, and he, you know, he just was stuck. So he manically paddled himself around inside that cream and built himself a floating patty, patty of butter and climbed on it and jumped out. That simple illustration matches multiple presentations in church history, starting with Pelagius, okay, who urged unbelievers to work for their salvation. Now, to be sure we understand, Paul continues with the back half of verse 8. So he began with, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and he continues with, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one can boast. Kent Hughes passed along this... Um, this account and summary, and I, uh, it blessed me. A large, prestigious church had three mission churches under its care. On the first Sunday of the new year, all the members of the mission churches came to the big city church for a combined communion service. <clears throat> in those mission churches, which are located in the slums of the city, 
were some outstanding cases of conversion. Thieves, burglars, and so on. And they all knelt side by side at the communion rail. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside the judge, a, a judge of the Supreme Court of England. The very judge who had sent him to jail, where he'd served seven years. After his release, this burglar had been converted and became a Christian worker. Yet as they knelt there, the judge and the former convict, neither one seemed to be aware of the other. After the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor and said to him, Did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? And the pastor replied, Yes, yes I did, but I didn't know you noticed. The two walked along in silence for a a few more moments, and then the judge said, what a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement and said, yes, what a marvelous miracle of grace. And then the judge said, but to whom do you refer? And the pastor said, why, to the conversion of that convict. And the judge said, but I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. The pastor, surprised, replied, You were thinking of yourself? I don't understand. Yes, the judge replied, it was natural for the burglar to receive God's grace when he came out of jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him, and when he saw Jesus as his Savior, he knew there was salvation, hope, and joy for him, and he knew how much he needed that help. But as for me, I was taught from early infancy to live as a gentleman, that my word was my bond, that I would to say my prayers, to go to church, take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford, took my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive it. I am a greater miracle of his grace. The reason the judge saw his salvation as a greater miracle was that the thief more so than the thief, is that his position had made him proud. And hardly the kind of man to humble himself enough to receive God's free gift. But that is what we must do. So whether we're evangelicals who cast ourselves into manic uh, church activities and leadership and and, uh, we're elected into roles in the leadership, things like that, or whether we're sacramentalists whose prime duty is to faithfully partake of the blessed sacraments, both tracks lay out a way to pursue and earn salvation. Not only does Paul say that there's no way to achieve salvation with human effort, neither does he ever say that salvation is achieved by faith. Alfred is a Greek scholar more than 100 years ago, and his quote got me. He says, quote, yeah, this was so, it was, obviously with some heat and some zeal and some passion, he said, quote, salvation has been effected by grace and apprehended by faith. Even blind human faith is not enough. True faith is belief plus trust. Now, salvation is a gift of God. It does not come through labor, diligence, or good works. Finally, Salvation comes through faith. God has offered grace. Have you reached out to receive his gift? And having received his gift, do you now believe and trust in him as your Savior 
and Lord. To arrive at verse 10, we've been to, we've had to pass through some awful depths, been raised to astonishing heights, introduced to amazing grace, and now we're charged with a destiny of good works. Quote, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Verse 7 stated that we were to be displayed as evidence of God's rich mercy and grace in the ages to come. That's part of why we were called to be with him. Now, verse 10 states that our experience of mercy, grace, faith, are to be expressed in good works that he has planned for this very time. In 1911, the Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers was converted, and his conversion came, and with his conversion came the greatest outpouring of energy the Scottish church had ever seen, second only to John Knox. Chalmers mixed his evangelism with social action and turned the city of Glasgow upside down. He became a man on fire, mourning, quote, the littleness of time. In centuries past, brothers and sisters remained in plague-ridden cities to care for the sick and elderly who were left behind. They took in abandoned baby infant girls, raising them as godly virgins in a culture that was, where that was ultra-rare. Monasteries preserved copies of Scripture during the Dark Ages. Believers fostered orphanages, medical missions, Sunday schools for children who worked in factories six and a half days a week. They fed and dressed the poor and the needy. They preached the gospel to the lost of the nations of the earth. All that came to a shuddering halt in the Great Depression. America's first exposure to social engineering, in which the government took the responsibility to feed, clothe, medicate, and employ, has borne bad fruit to this day. The ecclesia, the gathered ones, in the name of Christ, have stepped back. Missions giving has plunged. Engagement with the poor and needy has fallen under entitlements issued from the federal and state governments. The church appears to be powerless and withdrawn when under the scrutiny of the media. So, Forge family, we've been plunged low and, and, and resurrected high, uh, faced with God's great gift of grace that we're to receive and, and, uh, and trust in by faith. And now we are pointed toward good works in Jesus' name. Where is God prompting you to speak? Where is God prompting you to serve? Now, obviously, Holy Spirit gave speaking gifts and serving gifts, but that does not sweep away the urging of this passage to walk in the good works that the Lord God has prepared for each of us to be engaged in today. Ask Holy Spirit for divine appointments, encounters with the lonely and broken, the haughty and the high-minded. Some are destined to respond to the gospel. Let's discover what new good works God has to express here at Forge Church. Let's pray. God of mercy and grace, 
you plucked us out of darkness and death and made us alive in Christ and seated us with you in the heavenlies. As we wait for the return of Christ for the church, we would be those who display our salvation as you lead us. We are asking for new ways to penetrate darkness, to pull down pride and the cultural miasma. We have prayed for our eyes to be opened. And now, Lord, we pray for our hearts to be ready to respond when we raise our eyes and see what you're doing. And we would run to be with you, to participate with you. In Jesus' name, amen.